Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we're fresh from seeing the government's modelling of the coronavirus epidemic and what a damp squib that was. We'll be trying to unpack that today as well as looking at what seems to be a little bit of a pushback against the regulations that are locking down communities all over Australia. This is a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can get around some of our research, our economic bulletins on the current epidemic and its impacts. Later on in the show, we'll be talking about our culture picks as always. We have uh, a classic movie, Demolition Man. Uh, We also have um, uh, a video game, just to mix it up a bit, called Surviving Mars. And for those who want to see a bit of stoic philosophy in these difficult times, uh, we reflect on the life of Michel de Montaigne, the 16th century French philosopher, the sort of Alain de Baton of his day, but that is later in the show. <laughs> that is a brutal own, I have to say. Ah, yeah, actually, that's not fair on him, <laughs> that's is really it? really harsh. I take that back. Yeah. <laughs> he's, 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 this guy is actually, uh, yeah, anyway, insightful as opposed to trite. Um, anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, but first of all, it is, I was going to say, the topic on everyone's lips, but uh, given that it's airborne transmission, that's probably not the best me- uh, expression I could have used. Coronavirus. We had the modelling unveiled yesterday by... Um, uh, Scott Morrison. To talk about it with me, I have my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Chris. And also IPA Research Fellow, Andrew Bushnell. G'day, Scott. G'day, Chris. Great to hear your dulcet tones, Andrew, even if we're not in the same room. Chris, tell us about the modelling. Absolutely. So um, after some pressure, the government has released the modelling that has driven, or at least the Commonwealth government has released, the modelling that has driven um, its uh, public policy response to the COVID crisis, modelling produced by the um, uh, the Doherty Institute um, in Melbourne. Now, there's it, it's a bit of a damn squib. So the um, modelling, I think, uh, I don't think that we should be excessively critical of the work that the Doherty Institute has done because these... Policies, policies had to be made um, and, uh, and, and these models had to be made well in advance of um, Australian data. But it is nonetheless really important to know that these are models based on theoretical estimates of transmission based either on previous um, pandemics, so not COVID-19, or on international data. And of course, you've got to do modeling of other data before you have a pandemic in your own country. But it does emphasize to me, I think, and and this is something that we should discuss, it emphasizes to me the fact that we are making, or governments are making decisions on very, very limited and tenuous information. That is unavoidable, but I think that's how we should understand the responses and judge the responses. Andrew, is that a fair perspective to take? Or what, what did you think when you when you um, saw some of these models? I have a, a, something of an ideological uh, disposition against this, this way of viewing the world, um, the idea that it can be reduced to a spreadsheet in a meaningful sense. Um, now, I, I, I take your point that you have to do something and it's better to 
um, better to aggregate whatever data you do have um, and try and make predictions. But I do think that the uh, that there's a, a lack of, of, of humility around the discussion uh, of these things, um, that it's often presented to the public as though the models are um, sacrosanct or even that they're more certain than they are. Um, and so I, I think the macro point is, is something like um, in a society that is so data-driven, widespread innumeracy is actually a danger. Um, that this is, that in a way, the, the decisions are being made in a different language than the one that people speak on a day-to-day -day basis. And that this, this fact um, that um, the decisions are, are being predicated on something that um, requires careful explanation and a number of uh, complex caveats uh, hasn't really been communicated. So I, I do think that there's, um, uh, I, I, I think your point is, is correct, but I, I would I would make the point that the, the discussion around it has been, um, perhaps has elevated these models to a, a, a place that they may not even play in the actual policymaking process. Yeah, and, and I think that's most evident. I don't think it's as evident in Australia as it is in the United Kingdom where the Imperial College yeah, yeah. model with the massive number of um, deaths that it predicted something like 2 million deaths. Well, that was the top end of a range. <laughs> Um, and, and the range was quite significant. And in, additionally, it did not take into account the certainty that there would be policy responses. So that's 2 million deaths if nothing happened, if there was no policy response whatsoever. But there's always going to be a policy response and there's always going to be an imposition of some type of quarantine or social distancing or isolation or whatever you have. And I think one of the big challenges that um, the government, or so I think one of the big challenges that we as citizens face when we're looking at the evidence or the theoretical models that the government's used to impose um, the, the, the impositions that they have is um, trying to figure out what the marginal value of each additional imposition is. So it's one thing to say, so, so the models that have been released um, distinguish between quarantine, isolation, and social distancing, and make estimates about um, uh, about how many infections there will be. And those are those are very general estimates, but they don't tell us well. You know what what will the numbers be if we're not allowed to have more than ten people at a funeral or less than ten people at a funeral? If we're not allowed to um, go to the park with our family or we are allowed to go to the park with our family, we just have to understand that we are working off really, really um, broad data, really, really um, general claims rather than specific claims. But politicians have to work in specifics, and those laws have to say something. Yeah, for anyone who's studied economics, this is uh, familiar territory. It's like the the difference between macro and micro. And yeah. um, I mean, to to Andrew's point about the way these things are built up, um, I think the the modelling was actually presented with the sort of humility that Andrew's talking about. But uh, because it had taken so long to arrive, that it had built in the in the public mind to be this amazing thing that would explain why you're not allowed to sit on a park bench. Yeah, and, and in that the, sense, the demand, I, I think the, I, sorry, the demands on, for yeah, yeah, the demands for the modelling had reached the point sort of politically where they had no choice but to do it, and then they had to say, well, look, look, this was just 
this is about the decision, and, and you point out, Chris, there's a lag in all this. This was the basis of our decisions a month ago, not not what we're doing now. Yeah. And this is all macro. This is, um, you know, what are the you know system wide indicators here, and what we don't have, and we do desperately need. And I was I was going to say this later on, but you've opened the door to me, Chris. Sure. What, what we de- desperately ahead. need is some of that micro evaluation of the mesh uh, of, of the different measures because um at the moment uh everything's being lumped under social distancing and as, as some of the uh, more aware uh experts have pointed out you know un, un, in that bucket of social distancing measures is everything from we've closed cafes and you can't you can't cough on people to you're not allowed to lie on a beach um yeah. you know, we spoke you know, uh, an IPA member yesterday reported that, you know, having gone swimming at Manly, they came out to find a mounted police officer telling them to go home because clearly swimming in the middle of the bloody ocean is going to infect somebody somehow. So work that one out. Yeah, people and people want to believe that there's a they, people want to believe that there's a magic spreadsheet out there somewhere that that functions as a kind of oracle that contains this wisdom right this that, that that says precisely that people can't lie on the beach um and that of course is and that of course is is false now i i, I agree with you scott that um that perhaps the commentary from politicians um around this hasn't actually been as unsubtle as perhaps i suggested and i, I guess i'm thinking more yes about the the um the model that was used in the united kingdom but also the way the media um, has has talked about it, I think one of the one of the challenges that this this crisis has really revealed is that for the the critique of the media that um, people from our side of politics have been making for a long time has really been vindicated. Um, that our entire politics gets refracted through an extremely ignorant lens. Um, that that, um, that usually the the interlocutors or the the people. Um, arguing with the politicians on our behalf or conveying their, the information to us are not actually well equipped to understand it, um, and and so that that creates this kind of unsubtlety. I think, for example, just to take one very small example, it's been extremely well. Okay, extremely is an exaggeration, but it has been somewhat irresponsible um, for all of the media to have engaged in international comparisons on this matter. Um, infection rates, mortality rates, um, you know, the da- daily number of new cases, um, all of these things. There's absolutely no grounds for making international comparisons whatsoever. You, you wouldn't do it in any other field, any sociological field, um, because of different counting rules across jurisdictions um, and, and other, other kinds of uncertainty. So um, that's just one example, I think, of this, the way that this gets gets turned into an extremely unsubtle um, debate. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a moment because I, I think that's really interesting. And, and what, um, uh, what I've been thinking about um, over the last couple of days and the weekend um, is the implications of the fact that our, what we call the curve, looks very, very different from many other countries in the rest of the world. Um, and we're all feeling very cautiously optimistic that um, Australia's actually got this in hand. Um, so in late March, we were getting around, well, upwards of 350 new cases per day regularly, um, well above 
200, 250. We are now down on average around 100. And it seems like the curve continues or the numbers continue to decline. Now, that may may not be sustainable. I certainly hope it is sustainable, but it may not be sustainable. We, 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 can, but we may well be looking at a time in Australia where we haven't flattened the curve because remember, flattening the curve gives you the same number of infections just over a lower period. We yeah. may eliminate the curve. So um, in, in the discussions that people have been having, particularly in places like the United Kingdom and the United States, there's been a debate between should we try to um, uh, allow the virus to take its course and therefore get herd immunity once 40 or 70 or, or what have you percent of people um, get it and allows the virus to die out naturally or, or burn out naturally in the population. Or alternatively, should we try to suppress the virus so that um, uh, we spread out the um, infections, we still get the herd immunity, um, but we um, ease the burden on the healthcare system so that there are ultimately fewer deaths, more ICU beds available and so forth. Turns out there's a different model and that's what we have in practice started to achieve, which is not we flatten the curve and we all get it just slower, but we may be on the brink of eliminating the virus in Australia. Now, that now, that's a great situation to be in, I think. Um, and I'd certainly rather have that than Italy or New York or the UK or New Orleans or these places that have been really hit by the virus hard. But it puts us in a strange situation because we won't have herd immunity. We yeah, may eliminate the, border, the virus within these borders. Well, it creates an entirely different set of problems. Yes, it uh, does. Because yeah. then there's no pathway back. Um, and, and indeed, we're exacerbating this uh, we see in Western Australia where uh, the Premier has declared uh, Western Australia an island within an island. They've, they've sealed off the borders. So to the extent that Victoria and New South Wales are the, you know, relatively speaking, hotspots in Australia, uh, they might contain it in WA to an even greater extent. Uh, but then how do you ever come out of that? Yeah, um, and, and, and this is what we have to be starting to war game at least. Now, I, I don't think that we've made a mistake by trying to trying to suppress the virus. I think the um, government is acting in the best interests of the health of, or at least it thinks it's acting and intends to act in the best interests of the health of the population. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that there's a moral position that you could take otherwise, but it's going to create this really challenging problem. If the virus is virulent around the world and suppressed to the point of near elimination in Australia, well, then we have to keep our borders shut until at least there's really strong and powerful treatments and diagnosis or even possibly a vaccine. Well, the, the, other, the other thing I'd say to that, Chris, though, is there's, there's no concept that uh, having eliminated it and retreating behind our borders, that therefore we could release the social restrictions. So what we're talking about is a scenario of locked border. I mean, Gladys Berejiklian has, has articulated this the most of any of the leaders, where she's essentially said the uh, the social distancing measures uh, in whole or in part might remain until uh, the vaccine is developed. And if you're the if you're the cafe owner waiting to find out whether you can ever reopen, or the restaurant, or the pub, or or you just want to get back into your workplace, um, uh, this workplace which is currently deemed non-essential, maybe you're a, a real estate agent or a publisher or whatever. Um, in the absence of any plan, this, what's this meant to go on for 6, 12, 18 months? There, there, 
you know the the hit to economic activity is is uh, is what's driving yeah. the concern, which is which is obviously absurd. And I I I can only say that the a defence of the New South Wales Premier in that context has to be when she says social distancing will last until there's a vaccine. She cannot mean the sort of social distancing that we're seeing now. One hopes. No, she must. She must mean. She must mean the um, occupancy limits and things like that. I mean, people need to get over this idea that there's going to be a vaccine anytime soon. The SARS virus, the original SARS, since this is SARS two, so the uh, the bigger the bigger sequel. You know, the put more money put more money into it, but rehash the plot on a grander scale. Um, you know, SARS two, but the the original SARS. Um, there's still no vaccine for that. That was 17 years ago. The idea that for 17 years or more we're going to um, live this way in anything, in any respect like this, is is simply um, absurd. And this, what this, what this really says is, um, apart from apart from how good is it to live on a big island? Um, <laughs> these, the, that's what these numbers really say. Is that that's my that's my red, my reductive Jared Diamond take for the day um but i think that um you know what we're seeing in the last few days and the ipa got out in front of this um is that it's time to start talking about um a plan and a timeline uh, a, a plan for how uh we come off this these conditions a timeline doesn't have to be exact but uh, some guidelines and it is not too early. I think a few days ago the Prime Minister suggested it was too early, but it is not too early to start thinking about what the conditions are that will trigger a reopening of society. We need to start getting this clear right now because there's a danger that something that is temporary but indefinite simply becomes indefinite. Um, and that's that's the that's the worry here. That there has not been enough of a discussion, in my view, about the value of simply returning to normal public policy has gotten caught up in how exciting it is that the government has managed to spend uh 320 billion dollars in a month um and all the things that we can do with this money and how good it is that now we've decided that you can print as much money as you want all the things that we might do in the future um but let's have a discussion about returning to normal i thought the status quo ante while flawed was not actually all that bad i'm in no mood for a revolution, I'd like to know when it is I can go to the footy again. There's, so, also, uh, there's also an economic reason that we should start caring about that too because, um, sorry, more than just a, 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 about our global production or a national production, um, it's that what the government needs to provide is a provisional because it's only ever going to be provisional. Um, I don't think it's going to be a timeline because we don't know about infection rates and numbers and so forth. But there can be guidance about, well, if it go, if the numbers keep going down below X or um, for a number period of weeks in a row, then firms can start planning about when they will be putting bringing furloughed staff back, of, often they've got to think about the maintenance of their equipment, how much should they be investing in keeping things shuttered and so forth. We actually need, firms need that sort of information sooner rather than later with, of um, course, appropriate caveats that um, we can't know. There's massive amounts of uncertainty, but we need to have some idea about the terms on which 
the economy might return to work, whether it's next week or in six months. So I have a, I have a theory about that. You'll be pleased to hear. Chris. Oh, that's great. I love theories. Which is that what you just said uh, is not going to happen. Um, <laughs> that's that, not a theory. <laughs> that, that is, uh, I've never accused you of being delusional, but the picture you painted <laughs> is never going to happen. If you are going to wait for government to tell you when you can reopen, you will never reopen. So... Uh, oh, this the, is an the, argument for a massive speakeasies. Every restaurant. No, no, no. So, no my um, no, no, no. We can stay within the law, and um, <laughs> uh, we're advocating a change to the rules. By the way, not 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 civil disobedience. Um, it's the rules that are the problem. Uh, my my point is that uh, I think every industry, every business in this country, actually needs to mobilise um, and to actually map their own path forward and put that to government. Governments are completely focused on this macro modelling and they're never going to get their head out of that. Um, the, so it is pleasing to see and, and we'll be taking a short break in a minute and we'll come back and we'll talk about how the debate shifted within a minute, uh, you know, in, within the space of a week since the IPA first put out a video calling for a rollback of some of the social distancing measures. But my point is that the government, even though they now talk about letting some of this off and allowing some cases to spread into the community and starting uh, what's been called the dance, where you, you, you track all the numbers and you track the ICU beds and so on, this is all macro-level stuff. I think every industry in Australia needs to take control of its own destiny and start saying these are the conditions on which we will come back into operation. To get back uh, to Andrew's uh, status quo ante, perhaps not uh, immediately, but in stages, uh, this is a risk assessment industry by industry, and they damn well better get on with it because if you're waiting for government to do it, it's not going to happen. Now, this is, I think, what is happening anyway, and this is something, uh, this is what I'm sort of calling capitalism finds a way. So, in fact, I think industries are individually doing that, and we've all been to supermarkets and bottle shops and office works and we've seen the really sometimes quite radical changes to the way that they'll process payments the um, barriers between um, uh, customers and um, service staff and the, the industries are actually doing this because unlike in some countries um, we haven't had a ban on non-essential work we've had a um if you can work from home then work from home but we're not the government hasn't required us to shut unlike down, new zealand for instance unlike new zealand but the government hasn't required us to shut down different industries so every industry every firm every small business in the country is working through those problems now we're working from home because we're in a um, industry that allows us to work from home. But that is that same adaptation that we are also simultaneously seeing in retail. We're even seeing it in restaurants as, um, as partial as unfortunately that has to be. We're even seeing it in bars when people are um, starting. You can now order um, uh, delivery um, cocktails and, and so forth or, or make your own cocktail. I've seen some of my favorite restaurants will um, give you half-cooked meals that you just do the final preparation at home. That is the response. Now, it's only ever going to be partial. It's going to be highly damaging to economic growth. It's, it, it is very, very disruptive, but it is that sort of adaptation that, you, that, that we're seeing, and it is done without asking permission of government. Over the weekend, the IPA did release a video featuring Director of Policy Gideon Rosner. Uh, we were amongst the 
first and perhaps loudest of voices to say that it was time to start considering the rollback of the social restrictions that we have in place in Australia. It's provided you done it in a, a safe manner whilst maintaining social distancing. Uh, that video has certainly had some impact. It's been viewed over 600,000 times on various forms of social media. And uh, it's worth looking at some of the reaction to that, how that played out over the weekend, and then what we've actually seen happen in the debate over the week since. Gentlemen, what was your reaction? Well, so I mean, my, my view is that, um, uh, as you say, Scott, the debate has actually, in the interim period, and, and we've been talking on this podcast about how fast things happen. Again, we're recording this on Wednesday, so our opinions are our Wednesday opinions. Um, uh, how fast the debate has changed because I think of the very low or the obviously declining numbers. And we're now starting to have this conversation and it's not the IPA that's starting, that, that's only having this conversation. It's a lot of um, in fact, a lot of public health specialists, um, certainly a lot of economists, talking about when will we be allowed back to work or when will we be allowed back to some form of social distancing appropriate social lives, when will restaurants be allowed to be opened and so forth. And so just looking at, um, uh, looking at the papers this morning, um, the New South Wales government is actively having this conversation with its MPs, um, uh, quote, the New South Wales Health Minister and Chief Health Officer held a conference call with a large number of New South Wales MPs in which the pros and cons of suppressing the virus were weighed up. This is a live conversation. Now, it's a live conversation in Australia, I think, because of our numbers. It's not a live conversation in New York or um, Italy, where things are much worse. But it's it's something that we have to be allowed to discuss and and actively. And I, I made this point in the podcast some weeks ago. And that's if we can't why talk about these things. Then we we're not going to get through the crisis. And that's why I think, Chris, your your earlier point about being clear about the language um, was is really important. I mean, social distancing has taken on this. Um, it, 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 it's become very capacious. It, it takes in everything from staying at home to keeping one and a half metres away from people in the supermarket. Um, and, of course, that was the bit that was deliberately elided by the critics of, of the IPA's video, um, that people didn't really listen to, to what Gideon had said, or at least some people. I think other people listened and thought, yeah, that's spot on, um, and someone should have said it. I think some of his critics um, thought that he, he was saying, um, do whatever you want. Even even Media Watch, um, even Media Watch had to admit that um, no one was saying, let her rip. Um, and that's because in the video, what Gideon was saying was, we need to start considering um, how we can wind this back. We need to start thinking about the timeline on which we're going to wind it back. It, let's insist that it is temporary and will be wound back. Um, and, and and let's do it safely um, because at the moment we're sort of well ahead of the evidence based on the spread of the the disease here in Australia. So I think that's the, that's the debate is that um, no one's saying um, let a rip, take down all the measures straight away. But someone had to say um, that there is scope here for winding these back in the near term 
um, given what's going on in society. And I think Gideon made the point in the video, I think he, uh, or later on Sky News, he, he made the point that there's a humanitarian crisis brewing um, in the sense that people cannot live this way. People cannot live cooped up in their homes wondering about whether they have a job to go back to or not. The uncertainty is becoming uh, anxiety and anxiety is extremely debilitating. So these are, the, these are the, the factors that actually need to be included in the discussion. And, and before we get to what unfolded over days, just to labour the point, you know, the reaction over the weekend, I mean, it is Twitter, you know, admittedly, uh, but there was, uh, as well as uh, the support uh, Gideon and the IPA received for that position, there was uh, a lot of, uh, in the Twitter storm, shut it down, this video should actually be removed, it's a danger to public health, you know, can you believe these guys... Uh, the, the some prominent ABC identities piled on, and um, and of course there was a search for experts who would uh, pour scorn on it. And uh, in fairness, many of them did. Um, uh, but then some of them uh, started to make the point that you know they were true to their principles. Uh, for instance, uh, we have um, uh, Peter Collinian, uh, Professor Peter Collinian. Uh, who start, did start to talk about the petty restrictions. He's certainly not in favour of um, uh, lifting restrictions en masse, but he, but he started to make some points. He said, look, you, you're safer outside than inside. I do not see how anyone's going to get this virus if they keep two metres away from someone, and I don't see how they, anyone's going to get it if they sit on a park bench, which is actually illegal in some states as of this moment. He said these are panic decisions, not decisions based on data. And, uh, and Andrew, you referred to... Uh, the elision, the fact that people, you know, didn't read or choose chose not to read uh, Gideon's caveat that you know it needs to be done safely with social distancing measures in place. But this was actually done uh, quite specifically by the ABC uh, when uh, Nikki Javastek was interviewing uh, one of these experts. Uh, the grab that they played from Gideon's video for the uh, for this expert to respond to, specifically took those words out, took the qualifier out and played it. I mean, what was the poor guy going to do other than say, oh, well, that's, that's terrible. That's, that's, that's just reckless indifference to public health. Um, but, you know, so there'll be, there'll be, and Janet Albrechtson's written about that, uh, chairman of the IPA in The Australian today, definitely worth a read if you got access to The Australian because uh, that is one of the more disgraceful episodes uh, in a long line of attempting to shut down the debate that the ABC has undertaken in this process. Right, it, is, it, is fundamental, it is fundamentally unserious to argue that there's only two possible positions. There is the maximum lockdown where you're not allowed to sit on a park bench and everything that that implies, or there's a complete let it rip model and everything that that implies as well. And one of the reasons that I say this is because, um, not because politicians are, excessive, are really good at nuance, but because the economy, to the extent that private businesses are concerned about the risk of um, infecting their employees or their customers, there will be no immediate return to what, what um, Andrew's calling the status quo ante. It's just not going to happen this will be a staged thing a staged return to work regardless of what the government 
policy is. And many of the, um, what I'm talking about is the sort of the retail facing changes. I think many of them will be permanent additions to our world. We are not going to move immediately to let it rip. We are not going to have great uh, dance parties launched tomorrow if the government says it was fine. This is going to be a stage return because the economy itself is worried about the danger, not just the government of this virus. Yeah, but I think the question is which stages and when. Um, I think they could start to sketch that out. So when I said timeline earlier, I'm not necessarily talking about dates, although I do think that that is worthwhile considering. But um, if not dates, what are the stages? Um, who, who's going back first and who, um, you know, are we doing it? Uh, are, there, are there certain states that can open up first? Um, Tasmania, of course, being its own island. Um, it would be one example. There's been a proposal WA that the AFL... being functionally an island, yep. Yeah, the, you know, there's a, exactly on the other side of what is essentially a, a sea, with the desert. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, there's been a proposal, for example, that the AFL relocate um, to Tasmania for a few months, um, which I'm not opposed to because I'm dying without football. But I think... Um, you know, this idea that, as you say, there's this idea that there's no there's no scope in the middle. There's no spectrum of policy options. Um, and that, that gets back to this idea that I, that I was saying, which is that um, the modelling uh, and the situation itself have been portrayed in, in the media as being more certain than they are. And this leads to the kind of um, vociferous hysteria that you see on social media because people think that there are rock hard concrete facts that anyone wanting to talk about the spectrum in the middle of policy responses um, is is ignoring. Um, but that of course isn't true. I mean, if you think about what we don't know about this disease, we don't know how many are infected. We don't know how many have been infected. We don't know how uh, we don't know transmission rates. We don't know who's being infected at what rate. Um, we don't really know how it's transmitted. The latest theory is that it's airborne. When it started, they said that it was transmitted by surfaces, which is why you were supposed to wash your hands and not wear a mask. And they lied to us deliberately about wearing masks. And now they're uh, they've changed their tune on that. We don't know mortality rates because you can't know that without knowing infection rates. We're not making the appropriate comparisons because the appropriate comparison would be the mortality rate or the, the overall death rate for this month against a similar month in the middle of another pandemic or flu season. Um, we don't know how many people have it and don't present symptoms. I mean, all of these uncertainties mean that there's a wide range of responses. And this is what we're starting to see in the, in the last week is that people are starting to reconsider what these uncertainties mean for that broad spectrum of available policy responses. Andrew, but I have to um, say, to, to, to be contrarian there, so I agree, well, We and, and the uncertainties go even further because we don't know how it affects young people, um, whether they are infected and asymptomatic. We don't know about the asymptomatic transmission. We don't know. Um, so we're talking just, no, about all the things we don't know, gentlemen. No, no, but the point, the point, the point I want to make. Of course uh, um, there's uncertainties. There, there's massive uncertainties, but it, the point I want to make is that those uncertainties may, in fact, tell us that we should go harder though. I mean, those uncertainties are not only on the upside. Those uncertainties are also on 
the downside. It may affect children and they may be massive transmission. It may affect animals. We've seen some stories about um, cats and the tiger um, in the US that was affected. So you could make the argument that a lot of those uncertainty, uncertainties, Andrew, should imply that we should be more precautionary. Yeah, but look, so we should be shutting down more things. Now, I'm not yeah, sure but, I believe that, but but that that's the uncertainty plays both sides. No, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. So both of you have listed a degree of uncertainties and a, and a, and a degree of diversity of opinion out there. Now, um, the government is we have an executive government in charge. That's our Westminster system, um, and they have to make decisions, and they have to make decisions in real time, and we give them that authority, and on the basis of uh, some pretty rudimentary modelling. They made a series of decisions, uh, and generally we admire them for that, um, it, for the most part. Um, but you know, there is also a role for the people, and there is also a role for debate. Now, if only, if only we had the opportunity. Uh, you know, you can't have 20 million people sitting in judgment every time there's a decision. But if only we we could elect representatives. Uh, who might actually have the opportunity to review some of these decisions, to if, call if some of the If only there was an institution in our democracy that had the opportunity for formal discussions and debates about policy yeah. and political wouldn't, ideas. Wouldn't that be nice? Perhaps, you know, they could but, form loose groups. But, Scott, uh, I, I, they I, I would like to... could come together and discuss it and, and say the, this is what we believe as a group. And The nation's yeah. chief law officer, the Attorney General Christian Porter, and I quote, on Monday bluntly told the opposition that MPs had, quote, better things to do than sit in Parliament. Um, so <laughs> Parliament is sitting today, um, as I understand, on, on Wednesday uh, in a very limited form. I haven't seen how many parliamentarians are there, but um, there's a lot of pairing that's going on. So um, only a fraction of the parliament will be sitting. But this is apparently planned to be the last time parliament will sit. MPs are not expected to be summoned back to Canberra until the 11th of August. Now, I understand that there are some really big challenges if you want to have both social distancing and parliamentary debate. They all sit really close to each other and all these sorts of things, but it seems like the um, idea of having a stripped down, heavily paired parliament responds to most of those problems. I think the idea that they are shutting down parliament or they are shelving parliament for a period in which we are making more changes than we probably have at any time in Australian history outside war and outside the start of federation is obviously obscene and is preventing us from having what can be frustrating but is in fact the necessary and normal range of political debates about these policy changes and i i have to say this is not an argument only made by um uh, free market radicals such as ourselves i've seen i think it's the australia institute has been making this point many people and, on, and the australian greens and the australian greens many people on the left have been making this point but the idea that we are shuttering parliament for this period is incredibly uh, i don't think it's i'm obscene. overstating it when i say it's dangerous yeah, it's but this, dangerous this, from a policy level this goes this goes to my 
my point though. So you you raise the precautionary principle, and I, I take the I take the point. But before you can implement this precautionary principle, you have to make a qualitative judgment about the nature of the problem that you're facing. The precautionary principle applies when there's a systemic risk, when the when you don't know how a problem is going to uh, affect or circulate right throughout a system, and it could crash the entire system. That's when you, you say, okay, given the uncertainty, we're going to act in a really big way. That's a qualitative judgment. You have to make a decision about what it is that you're actually looking at. Are you looking at an apple or are you looking at an orange? And these are the decisions that Parliament is best placed to make. So this problem is being presented as a quantitative decision that it's about data and that there is some sort of scientific process of examination or observation and then deduction that gives us concrete answers about who should be allowed to read a book in the park and who should not. It is not about numbers. It is a, a decision about the actual problem that we are facing. Um, and this is this goes, I think, to your point that that is what Parliament is for, is to make a determination about the nature of the problems that we face. This can't just be handed over to the experts. So that's why it's really important. Um, that's why it's really important, Scott, that we continue to emphasize the kinds of uncertainty that surround this problem because it's within those the bounds of those, un those uncertainties that our different policy options lie. Absolutely. And the other, the other thing that we have talked about on this podcast uh, as much as you know, almost four weeks ago is that this is a twin crisis. And at the moment, the executive is uh, fixated mainly on managing uh, a small number of variables in the health domain and decision making is driven by health and economics is seen as the thing which just results from that, you know, and, and the measures are what shall we do about the economic uh, impacts of these decisions uh, that we had no alternative but to make. So my specific thing for the for the parliament is uh, I still uh, refuse to believe that there isn't some way that um, uh, at least debates can't be held at a mass level. But we have over the many decades developed systems of parliamentary committees uh, of which we are meant to be proud, but which are in no way involved in this process. So at the very least, I would like to see the Economics Committee of the House of Representatives convene on bloody Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Zencaster or whatever program you want. In the UK, uh, parliamentary committees have been active. They called Professor Neil Ferguson from Imperial College, the man who'd done the modelling, and was were able to quiz him on it. Um, but our Economics Committee is asleep. Uh, the committees responsible for health are asleep. I understand that uh, Matthias Cormann said that the uh, the Finance and Legislation Committee would convene to review the package of measures that's being rammed through today, but that is not parliamentary scrutiny of the decision-making. It is time for our parliamentarians to actually stand up and be counted, to do their jobs, even, even if it's to give a round of applause to the government decision-making. And I think they're hiding. I think they're hiding because they actually don't want to put their political capital on the table alongside that of the government. At the moment, it's like ScoMo, Gladys, Mark McGowan, the, the rest of them, it's like, you know, they're, they're either going to come through this victorious or they're going down with the ship. I want to see the, the ordinary rank and file parliamentarians actually stand up and do their job. 
Well, that's right. And and I think the point about the committees is really important. And I'm not sure just looking at it now, whether they've um, narrowed down precisely how they're going to do the normal range committees. But the most important committee that we need to sit right now is Senate Estimates. Because Senate Estimates is the um, regular calling up of um, uh, bureaucrats, um, uh, department representatives, that allows oppositions and backbenchers to quiz departments about why they came to their decisions on all the huge range of policy areas that we're doing. Now, we've been going through on this podcast um, the really macro level policy decisions, like the JobKeeper policy, like um, uh, the the free childcare policy, like the decision to close the schools. But it's really important for listeners and all of us to keep in mind that bureaucracies across the country are making small and probably quite significant, what, what look like small decisions, but are probably quite significant decisions across every area of their responsibility. So we are looking at um, a form of, in some areas, quasi-deregulation as regulatory agencies stand down, as, for instance, the um, uh, Securities Investment um, uh, Commission decides to um, not impose some of its really intrusive surveillance policies on firms. Now, I think that's good, but I also want us to be able to drill down with the people who are making those decisions, the bureaucrats that are making those decisions, about why and what they think the implications will be and whether they think this is a permanent or temporary or so forth. And that's why we need the normal run of parliament. I I understand it is hard to do logistically, but it has to be done. Yeah, but you can't have... First off without it. Isn't one of the challenges that you can't really have a debate about the various trade-offs involved if you have a significant group of people a significant constituency who simply refuses to admit that there are trade-offs. Um, and so... That's, that's true. That's true for no, no, no. discussion yeah. we've had. No, but no, that, it is, it is. But it's particularly true right now that if you, as Gideon Rosner found out, <laughs> if you are the one who says, wait a second, there's a trade-off here, you're, the response you get from... And not insignificant, but let's not overstate it, but a not insignificant number of people is that there is no trade-off um, and that anyone who thinks that uh, there's, a, there's a public policy question here around, um, as, as we're, we've said, two, the two different crises that we face, anyone who suggests that that is uh, a matter for public concern gets called, uh, gets accused of wanting to kill, kill grandma and... Um, and and that you know you're obs- it's obscene, it's considered obscene. This for this has been a constant refrain in every major policy debate that I have participated in. So we've had that in the climate change debate. No acceptance that there might be a trade-off between emission reduction and um, economic prosperity. We've had that in um, uh, the debate. We had that uh, the debate about the GFC and the stimulus package. No recognition from some quarters and from major political parties, in fact, that there might be a trade-off between temporary protecting the economy. Yeah, and that's been a problem in that. It's been a problem there as well. And that and and it's the same. This is what I want to say. Basically, is I'm leading up to a point. Is that it's the same people 
Um, and why, why would it be the same people who in every debate suggest that there are no trade-offs? Are they really this simplistic? My view is that, um, that they're not, in fact, that simplistic and that what they see here uh, and they saw they see it in climate change as well. Um, when they when we when we confront a large collective action problem like this, a big system effect, they see an opportunity to push for systemic change, a revolution, um, and they get upset at anyone who says this problem is manageable within the bounds of the status quo, because they think that the status quo is unjust. And so anyone who says there's a trade-off here um, that we need to take into consideration the existing value that is stored in our social and economic arrangements is simply unjust and obscene. And and this is, this is the important bit. They are obscene because they stand in the way of the revolution that this system problem uh, promises. So I think that there's a significant number of people who, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they're barracking for the virus. It's just that they are opportunistic. And they, they say, now that the country is focused on systemic problems, now that the country has committed to, for example, printing a whole lot of money to pay for a system problem, perhaps now my otherwise extraordinarily marginal views become possible. And now I get upset if my if my views are, are dismissed as unnecessary because the status quo contains within it the resources to confront the problem. No, and I think I, I, I think that's right, and I think your diagnosis of the problem is right. My question is, um, uh, I I think that politicians in power actually have to respond to those trade offs, and I don't. Think I, I mean, we've got different criticisms of different governments across the country, and some of these governments are doing things better, and some of them are doing worse. But I don't think there's a um, I, I don't think there's an ignorance of the necessity of trade offs amongst most of Australia's governments, even when I think that they might be drawing those trade offs wrongly. And I don't want us to spend too much time worrying about the um, screaming people on Twitter and the loudest, angriest voices um, uh, in, in the media, of course, some of which are the same. Um, uh, there's a huge overlap between angry Twitter and the loudest voices in the media. Yeah, although angry Twitter, angry Twitter, of course, does in a way control the government here in Victoria. I mean, <laughs> no, no, in, a, in a sense, because like if Dan Andrews were not the Premier, he would have a little blue drip handle on Twitter and he'd be sharing poorly drawn memes about the IPA. He's exactly that kind of lunatic. So uh, I think it is important to understand that that constituency is very influential in particular in Melbourne and, and to a lesser extent in Sydney. Um, and yeah, okay, we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow them to dictate the terms of the debate. And I think Scott Morrison has actually been pretty good at um, giving this problem more of a realistic spin. Uh, much to their their disappointment, but I, I still think that it's it's kind of for me symbolic uh, in a way of of what is a real roadblock in our in our democracy, which is that there are some people, um, the Dan Andrews constituency, whose thinking is extraordinarily unsubtle, and yet they credit themselves with sophistication. Uh, can I can I come in there because 
with that. Um, I, I do agree with what you're saying. There are other dynamics at work as well. Um, one of them is, since we're talking about the premiers, uh, that the structural imbalances in the in the federation are really coming out here. Um, you know, the poor old IPA. Uh, there's not not many of us who actually care about whether or not we have a functioning federation, but um, we have been pointing out for years uh, the impact of the structural imbalances, and and which is that the fiscal power is concentrated in Canberra much more than. Uh, the those who wrote the constitution ever envisaged and what's coming out at the moment is this idea that you get from the states and and of uh, one degree of separation from the victorian cabinet they've literally uh, uh, felt that scott morrison isn't it terrible that um uh, he's so focused on economics because you know we have to worry about the hospitals and this is the idea that uh, as states have just become service deliver delivery arms, um, they're focused on the health uh, needs of the population. And the economy is now something that's seen as something that's a responsibility of Canberra. Yeah. So, so in effect, a... you, you can make a series of decisions at the state level to manage the things for which you do feel yourself to be responsible and if there are economic consequences of that, well, that's that's a federal responsibility. It's up to them to come up with a bailout package or print money yeah. uh, because it's also accompanied by this idea that, you know, there's no conceivable economic impact that just can't be dealt with by a stimulus package, Mark 4, Mark 5, Mark 6, Mark 7. So it's economic illiteracy coupled with the way our federation is structured has created a terrible, terrible incentive. So even if Daniel Andrews was a saint, uh, I think he would be trapped in this idea that all I care about is ICU beds and and the rest of it is is ScoMo's problem. That is a super interesting point, Scott. And just to if if we sort of give a rough abstraction about what's happened is social distancing has been imposed by the states. So social the it is the states that have closed down a lot of um, uh, our, our social lives. They're the ones who enforce. The social distancing policies they have the discretion to do so but of course those social distancing policies are the ones that have sh simultaneously shut down the economy which uh, which is the responsibility of canberra or at least canberra's responsibility in this crisis has been to try to backstop employment try to backstop some of our larger firms so there's a huge disconnect now hopefully oh, this is the optimistic perspective hopefully the national cabinet process which is this rolling coag version which gets gets all the premiers and um and uh first ministers together with the commonwealth government hopefully that is the domain in which those discussions get negotiated in which those trade-offs get made but you are absolutely right that one level of government is doing the banning and one level of government is paying for the for, for the consequences of those bans yeah, and just to labour the point, by the way, the the state parliament should also be in session, or their committees <laughs> at least should also That's be in right. session. I mean, what these people are paid vast amounts of money. What are they doing? It is a good question. You see all these uh, all these pictures of these politicians. They're being told to stay in their homes as well, I presume. So I do wonder what it is that they do all day. Yeah, what, what, what's the, um, the Cromwell's words? You know, you, you no longer do any good here in the in the name of God. Go, you know, seems, <laughs> seems, seems to be the line.
we have come to that part of the show where we're asking people what is in their lockdown library how are they coping with being cooped up at home 24 7 what books videos podcasts etc are they turning to in these interesting times chris berg you've actually gone off piste no more i i I have i'm I'm such a highbrow sort of person (laughs) and um uh, the audience is, is used to me giving such detailed discourses on philosophy and so forth. But I played a computer game um, uh, this week. I very rarely play computer games, but maybe once every couple of years, I, I think to myself, wouldn't it be nice to sit in front of the computer and um, do something like that? And so I have been playing a game called Surviving Mars. It's uh, about two years old. It runs pretty well on my um, uh, on my work laptop, so that that functions very nicely. Um, so the game is basically SimCity on Mars. Um, you have to build a colony. You have to deal with resources. Um, you have to dig things out of the ground. You have to sell them back to Earth to get more money in order to be able to afford more rockets that can bring you other resources or passengers or so forth. It's a great fun game. Um, uh, I do recommend um, if anybody enjoys a long and um, uh, all-consuming sort of building game like Sim City, which, of course, I remember f- very well from my childhood. But I did want to make just one observation. Um, uh, the criticism of Sim City has always been from free market economists or free marketeers has always been it gives you a, um, a, a view of the world that you could never have. It gives you this idea that your city economy is a machine. You can just trigger little things and then everybody will scurry around in in response. You could trigger, say, for example, social distancing and then, uh, and then you know, a, a, a virus level will go specifically down or up or, or what have you. Um, this game is interesting because rather than playing an all-knowing urban planner, you're playing a company, a company setting up a private community and setting up a um a community that's supposed to be profitable you are supposed to make money and if you make money you can build a bigger community um and and so it's quite an interesting and much more realistic if you think about the way that we would end up colonizing outer uh, outer space um i think the reason i'm playing this game is because i want to think about things that aren't the coronavirus and um, thinking about how we might colonize Mars is as far away from that as I can possibly. But then you just took it back to the coronavirus. I did because we're all stuck in this, aren't we? Are <laughs> you we? you but, failed. You're, so you're we've, we've had two, I know, I know. We've had two. We've had two uh, video games on this um, podcast so far in our books and culture segment. Um, the other one, uh, Gideon Rosner, for some reason decided to tell us all about the video game pandemic. <laughs> and I thought this would, <laughs> this would be a, a nice um, uh, distancing thing from that. Yeah, social distancing. Yeah, it nearly social worked. Distancing. Cultural yeah. distancing. That's what, that's, what, that's what we're talking about here. Very good. Uh, I actually have a book, so I might, um, I might interrupt here. And uh, it's one that I picked up earlier this year and uh, it's about uh, a life of Michel de Montaigne, the 16th century uh, French philosopher uh, and writer, uh, famous for his book of essays, uh, which I have tried to read on numerous occasions and dismally failed. Uh, you only have to read one at a time, though, Scott. That's the, uh, the, the translations, though, are very, very difficult. Um, <laughs> uh, the trouble with 
uh, publishers, of course, is that they uh, want to do things on the cheap, so they'll pick up some translation that was made at the start of the 19th century, and uh, that kind of English is virtually unreadable. And I'm uh, certainly not reading the stuff in the original French. But anyway, very interesting guy. Um, and uh, he's uh, was born in the uh, in the south of France, uh, in around Bordeaux. Uh, his family actually had a, a vineyard. Uh, they're related to the um, uh, the house of uh, Yukem, the uh, the Champagne House, and uh, he was very uh, well educated. Uh, his father had the bizarre idea that he would speak nothing but Latin uh, until he went to school. He found a, a Latin teacher. He he, he and uh, the boy's mother were made to speak nothing but Latin to him. Uh, because this was part of uh, this humanist education that they were they were meant to get, and uh, to the end of his days, he he, he spoke um, uh, pretty impressive Latin and could certainly read and write the greats. So he was right at that uh, that period when the great literature of the uh, of Western civilization was coming back into Europe as it emerged um, from the um, from the Middle Ages. And we they, we had the Renaissance, uh, but he was not an abstract intellectual. I've really enjoyed this book. It's by um, uh, Sarah Bakewell, and it's a combination biography, um, some choice readable quotes from what he's talking about, and his and his life. He was a bit of a character. He enjoyed life. He was a lawyer. He worked, and then because he had independent wealth, he basically quit. Uh, in his mid thirties, and started writing. So, what's not to love about that kind of fantasy idea? <laughs> and um, he's still uh, quoted as a as a philosopher. But again, it's not an abstract philosopher. It's not that kind of uh, head scratching stuff that uh, uh, Mr. Bushnell gets involved in. It's uh, it's philosophies for life. Uh, very much I read a lot of the um, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Uh, his essays were on things like how to deal with grief, the sort of uh, mind tricks that you might use to take your mind uh, off your problems, uh, how to how to put your own troubles in a in a broader context. All of these things, which are as as relevant today as they they ever were. Um, he, he's great friend. Uh, in fact, the, the, the in, in a day when um, you know friendship was eulogised very much, uh, sadly died of the plague uh in his in his 30s and uh, uh the uh, montaigne writes about that uh off and on throughout his essays uh, completely chaotic he went used to go back and rewrite things all the time and and uh this biographer says you can't you can't work out when he wrote something because he just kept amending everything every time but um yeah no it's not it's good sometimes to go back to some of the some of the old guys and and see how they actually got through life. <laughs> when, we, uh, life. The, the Stanford uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy tells me uh, right at the top he thought that too much knowledge could prove a burden, preferring to exert his natural judgment to displaying his erudition. Yeah, uh, I mean that's that's my argument for why I don't do. Much yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And this is why this is why footnotes are unnecessary. This is what I I keep telling I keep telling my supervisor. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, how does that go down? <laughs> no, no, footnotes are apparently necessary. <laughs> oh, um, really? Oh, I'm frustrating yeah. for you. But you know, it's going to be a slow PhD. Uh, <laughs> 
I, th- I think you should put that under the heading of things that should be suspended because of the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. So that's my that's my culture pick. Um, a nice introduction to a great writer who, unfortunately, is a bit impenetrable in translation. But um, read about his life instead, Andrew. What have you? Got? Yeah. Well, I have a I have a pick that might seem at first to be lower brow than that. Um, but that's only superficial. Um, this, the, my pick is the 1993 classic action movie Demolition Man uh, with Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. The, uh, the premise of the film is that um, we start in, in basically a, a very run-down, souped-up version of, of 1990s Los Angeles uh, in, in total decay where uh, Wesley Snipes has set up somehow some kind of um, personal fiefdom um, in Los Angeles and Sylvester Stallone is this hero cop that tries to take him down. Um, They end up both being, um, in the course of this, Sylvester Stallone somehow uh, is is accused of, of accidentally killing some hostages and they are both sent to cryo prison. Um, so then we cut forward. So they're frozen. They're frozen. We cut. We go forward in time um, to now rebuilt and uh, seemingly utopian um, society called San Angeles. The the merger of this is, and this gives you an idea of the tone of the movie. Um, and anyway, basically, what happens is that the ruler of this utopian society, played by Nigel Hawthorne from Yes Minister, um, he. <laughs> You know, inexplicably appearing in this movie, amazing. Um, <laughs> movies like this turn on how good the actors are who play the bad guys, and so having him and Wesley Snipes on the bad guy side of this is really, um, really to this film's credit. Um, and anyway, he, he, there's a dissident element in this society. It's Dennis Leary who, at this, at that time. Um, of course, it is. Had a, he had a hit song in the early nineties. You might remember about being um, an asshole. Um, well, and, triple, the inaugural Triple J Top One Hundred Award. Yeah, oh, okay. the oh, yeah, yeah, the very first. I'm an asshole. Um, so he, he plays this kind of quasi-libertarian underground figure um, that Nigel Hawthorne wants to kill. So, of course, instead of just killing him he unthaws Wesley Snipes um, to go and kill him for him. And then the police there, finding themselves in this utopian society and completely and comically unable to deal with um, violence from the previous century, um, they unthaw Sylvester Stallone to catch Wesley Snipes all over again in the future. Um, now, why, why, is this a, why is this a good movie? The movie is filled yeah, with. I think you've explained why it's a good movie. Yeah, it's the movie is, no, no, because the, and the reason this is a good pick for the present moment as we sink slowly into disorder is that um, the future is probably a lot more like this movie than we would care to admit. Um, <laughs> the this, the the reading involves massive social distancing. But, but the, the 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 movie is. Um, filled with allusions to, uh, make sure I say that word correctly, allusions to uh, a brave new world. But it's not that we're going to have a brave new world future. It's that we're going to have a bizarre future that is kind of a riff on the classic forms of tyranny. It'll be its own 
kind of tyranny, but in true postmodern fashion, it'll be a kind of recycling of other people's ideas. Um, I think that's the, you know, inadvertently people have taken their inspiration from dystopia, um, and that has set us on the course that we're on. Um, but it will probably be something like this. And the moral of this film, if you bear with me, the moral of this film is that this kind of uh, pseudo-utopia that's actually a, a, a dystopia can only be cured by a massive amount of 80s-style action hero violence. <laughs> uh, I think... Which so basically, So the movie is going to be inspired by like paranoia in the early 90s around crime. Um, and, of course, Sylvester Stallone is this figure from the heroic Reagan 80s, and he's there to set it right. Um, it's actually, in, a, in an odd way, a very kind of um, conservative in the American sense film. Yeah, so, so imagine when it was made, and as you say, most, most movies were dystopian, and uh, they had this proposition that in the future... Uh, you don't have to worry about the police becoming, you know, ultra-violent paramilitary thugs who go around beating up. What you have to worry about that the the police are so committed to social order that they actually spend their life with a thousand petty interventions uh, to stop you doing whatever it is yeah. you might otherwise have done. And people would have gone, oh, that's so unrealistic. <laughs> you know, the police will never get like that, will they? Yeah, and the movie, the movie really commits. The movie really commits to a particular joke that anytime someone swears, a little buzzer goes off and a machine issues them a ticket, and it says you'll find one credit for breaking this speech code. And the movie commits to this, right? If you listen in the sound to the sound mixing, every single time someone swears, no matter what else is going on whether there's gunfire or explosions. In the background, you can always hear one of those machines going on. Um, and, and so it's, got, it's full of little touches like that. I mean, the third act, like all action movies, is exactly the same, you know, good guy versus bad guy, and they fight, um, you know, and it's less interesting. But um, if you haven't seen this, but for some reason you haven't seen this, um, definitely, definitely check it out. I think it's – I saw it on uh, – it's on Netflix, I think. Um, so get around this. It's a Stallone classic. Oh, and, and, a, and a shout out too to um, – that's where I discovered Sandra Bullock. Uh, who I thought was um, terrific, and um, uh, please tell me Sandra Bullock's in it. Otherwise, I'm talking. No, about no, no, that's right. She yeah, she yeah. is the, the the love interest who's obsessed with '90s nostalgia, um, and so well placed to 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 help in the hero's uh, adventure. And, and great comic timing. I remember. I wish I could say I remember thinking one day she'll win an Oscar, but anyway, <laughs> didn't look quite that level. But I thought, oh no, she can she can act. This is actually terrific. Uh, no, no, ter uh, excellent pick, Andrew. Uh, so we have come to the end of that segment and indeed the end of our, our program. Thank you for listening. Please do remember that this is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, we, you can be one of our nearly 6,000 members if you're not already by going to ipa.org.au. Get around our work, look at Gideon's video that we've been talking about uh, so that it's not refracted through the distorted lens of the ABC. Actually, listen to the man himself and what he said and uh, generally see how you can support our work. I'd like to say a big thank you today to uh, the producers who've helped put this show together, by which I mean Josh and Saul and Mitch. Uh, Mitch, thank you for the headphones. I think they've worked a treat. Um, bit of feedback last week that the microphone wasn't cutting it, so here I am. And uh, big shout-out, too, to my 
fellow panellists today, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. And Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.